This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with James Doucette Battle about his new book, Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes, published by University of Minnesota Press this year. James Doucette Battle is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which happens to be my alma mater. Uh, He's a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley University, San Francisco Joint Medical Anthropology Program. His research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of science, technology, and society studies, development studies, and anthropological approaches to health and medicine. And he applies these interests to study the political economy of genomic discourses about race, risk, and health disparities. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Before we get into the book, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you interested in the subject of race, risk, and diabetes? Well, um, as a graduate student um, way back, um, I was really uh, taken by a book by Sidney Mintz, a classic in anthropology entitled Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in Modern History. And in that book, he argued that sugar was responsible not only for the um, con- for contributing to the uh, start of the Industrial Revolution, but that it was also responsible for creating new societies, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, um, bringing people, um, enslaved Africans and others from other parts of the world and creating new societies around this, this new commodity called sugar. And in so doing, um, a product was uh, placed on the market and, circled and circulated globally that changed the nutritional destinies, not only of people in the global north, but also in the global south. And um, the maternal side of my family um, is from the bayou in Louisiana, and generations of my ancestors there um, worked in the sugarcane fields. Um, and that tied the area to this larger Caribbean, South American sugar industrial complex. Um, and it fascinated me, particularly given the fact that my grandmother suffered from type 2 diabetes for most of my life. And um, through reading mints, I became more keenly aware not only of sugar as a as an artifact, as a commodity, but also as um, as a euphemism, as a as a synonym for diabetes. Because among many African Americans, sugar is the term that's used for diabetes. So I wanted to bring those two interests and experiences together, and um, construct a research project. That's really interesting about l- looking at the uh, the sugar industrial complex, as you say, and its relationship uh, to slavery, as as well as to um, the effect that it has on health today. 
Do you know how the term sugar came to be used um, by African Americans as a as a term for diabetes? No, I don't. Particularly given that my family wasn't originally English speakers, they were French Creole speakers. So the word for sugar that they would use, disic, is the word that is used um, not only for sugar but for diabetes in the French Caribbean and in Haiti, for example. So how it became um, part and parcel of um, of African American uh, Creole English um, is is something that um, I haven't been able to quite uncover. Huh. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know because I think it it wasn't always known about diabetes that it was a matter of glucose in the blood or glucose imbalance, uh, was it? Uh, we didn't know about glucose imbalances back then. We didn't even know about glucose. Um, yeah. All we knew was uh, sugar because up until the 1970s, um, the primary way for diagnosing type 2 diabetes was through urinalysis. And that is, uh, and through urinalysis, the amount of sugar, the amount of glucose in the blood was measured. Um, in ancient Chinese medicine, for example, um, um, diabetes was diagnosed uh, through urinalysis in a different way. Uh, urine was basically presented near a colony of ants, and if the ants swarmed toward the urine, uh, that, conform that confirmed the diagnosis of diabetes. Um, so sugar, in, in many respects, isn't necessarily, as we know, um, simply confined to, to the uh, product sugar that we know in its purified and synthesized state or synthetic state. It has a, more to do with the ways in which the body um, becomes insulin resistant to um, all sorts of carbohydrates, um, not just sugar alone. Right, which then are metabolized by the body in, into glucose. Um, so, uh, and the book is, among other things, uh, I would say an examination or maybe a re-examination of the concept of race also. So could you start out by defining what is meant by race and what you mean by race? And for example, you say in chapter one that, uh, and I quote, in arguing against racialized diabetes risk, I also argue against race. Uh, could you expand on that? Because I don't think race is actually easy to understand. And social scientists continue, and um, <clears throat> biological scientists continue to debate the term as well. Um, it doesn't seem to be a settled subject. It seems to be a perennial one that continues to reappear not only in discourse, but also in the literature. Um, as anthropologists, um, we maintain that race has no basis in biological fact, that it's a social and historical construct. Um, and part of this complex story that I tell in the book links the establishment of sugar plantation slavery with the racial categories that um, were um, erected and constructed in the, in the global West, I mean, in the West and in many respects, globally, um, and the ways in which African-American or African descent became a marker of a particular racial category that became operationalized in the production of sugar and the accumulation of capital. So 
while race is a social construct, I argue against race as a biological construct. And in making that argument, I link it to a conversation around diabetes risk to um, suggest that diabetes risk is environmentally determined and not racially determined. Yeah, and that gets into, well, we'll talk about uh, research. Uh, But one thing I just wanted to clarify is because you use the terms African descent, it seems like you use the term African descent in preference to African-American. Is that right? And if so, why? Because um, the history of of slavery, of migration, of genetics cannot be, I argue in the book, siloed and placed within national boundaries. I think we can say that even today, the African-American category now consists of upwards of 15% of individuals, of families, who were born outside of the United States. So immigrants from, from Africa, immigrants from the Caribbean, have all contributed to what is now considered the African-American category. And that has been true um, ever since um, the time of slavery. Um, the port, the part of Louisiana that my family originates from, my mother's side of the family, southwest Louisiana, the St. Martinville area, for example, was one of the um, was second only to New Orleans in the amount of Haitian refugees who settled the area, settled in the area after the Haitian Revolution. So there have always been these these movements of people from other places to the United States. And as I discussed um, in the book later on, when I discussed the case of Henrietta Lacks, um, when her um, cell line was circulated for analysis in different parts of the world, no one could identify the source of that particular bio um, sample as African-American, but they could identify it as sub-Saharan African. So I'm troubling and seeking to destabilize some of these impulses that seek to nationalize certain conversations around communities and categories and even um, causes and sources of um, illness risk. Yeah, that's good. And it's it's very, very thought-provoking. Um, so in, in chapter two, which is titled Sweet Blood, Inventing the Pre-Diabetic, uh, and that in itself is really telling because you use the term inventing the pre-diabetic. So we have these terms. You could be diagnosed with pre-diabetes or you could be diagnosed with diabetes. But but somebody makes those, as you write, somebody creates those, um, those designations whereby a certain hemoglobin A1C level, for instance, is considered pathological or, or pre-pathological or not pathological. <laughs> And you use this term that I, I really like, the pharmaceuticalization of prediabetes. I, it really interests me because, as you write, there's good evidence that diet and lifestyle modifications are very effective in preventing the onset of type 2 bi- diabetes uh, in vulnerable individuals. 
And there's both the idea of, uh, and this is a quote, treating patients within the context of their lives, which seems laudable because it's taking into account that um, dietary modifications and lifestyle modifications might not be uh, workable for everybody. So there's that, but there's also this connection between a highly profitable drug development and drug sales uh, and likewise profitable diagnostic technologies. So I wonder what, what do you see as the balance there between treating patients within the context of their lives versus uh, the pharmaceuticalization of prediabetes? Well, the economics of creating pharmaceuticals demands that not only um, vast markets be created, but that those markets create customers who, um, by and large, um, become repeat users of those of those pharmaceutical drugs. And um, type two diabetes is an illness that takes up a large proportion of the healthcare dollar in this country. And we hear stories now of people who. Um, struggle to afford um, their medication who have become seriously ill by rationing um, their doses of insulin and other anti-diabetic drugs. Um, But at the same time, I think, and clinicians I talk to readily admit this, that um, they understand that given the social determinants of health, whether it's um, food apartheid, food deserts that people live in, the um, relative unavailability, unavailability of um, access to, to the outdoors, um, family issues, um, work commitments, so on and so forth, that many people just simply cannot um, commit to the 140 to 180 minutes of aerobic activity per week that type 2 diabetics and actually most of us need to engage in every week in order to maintain our metabolic health. And then then another social context, uh, and I think that the pandemic has, in a sense, um, brought this increasingly to light are the ways in which um, we've increasingly become um, sedentized. Um, We spend more time indoors um, looking at our screens. Um, I have quite a few friends and colleagues who've introduced their children to a lot of well-rounded activities growing up. But once the children reached a certain age and they received their first phone, everything changed and these people are struggling to find a balance um, between screen time and real time uh, with their children. And um, I think it's a struggle that many families are having. Um, My students talk about it in um, class all the time in my science and technology and society class. And um, these are issues that we also need to be mindful of, particularly um, in terms of education. Um, STEM education is important. If this country is going to remain competitive, In the 21st century, we need to graduate more students from STEM disciplines, particularly underrepresented minority students. But at the same time, we see in many school districts a retrenchment around um, physical education classes, 
in elementary schools. Um, we see a decrease in even recess among um, young children in the um, early grades. Um, here in Oakland, we have a, a, um, a nonprofit agency that actually brings recess to schools. My colleague, Rebecca London, in um, our department at UC Santa Cruz in sociology has done wonderful work on recess and the importance of bringing it back into the school system. So um, encouraging us to move, encouraging us to get up and to get out um, is very important. Um, and I think that the pandemic and the quarantines and the shelter in places and the lockdowns, I think that going forward, um, the ways in which we move, the ways in which we eat, the ways in which we relate to each other, I think um, is going to um, be quite remarkable to, to witness, to experience, and most of all, study. Do you think people are more conscious now of the way that their, their eating and sedentary behavior is affecting them because of the pandemic and they can see it and there's this, um, what do they call it, the pandemic 15 or the coronavirus, you know, where people gain 15 pounds. Do you think people are, will be more conscious of that? The quarantine 15, I believe it is. Yeah, that's it, the quarantine 15. I, I believe so. And I think that it's going to um, change the ways in which people um, relate to movement, um, perhaps not um, a wholesale so social revolution in that regard. But many clinicians will 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 state that that 10 to 15 pounds in terms of pre-diabetic risk is quite significant and most of us who who or most most people who have um, pre-diabetes um, could um, as my mother did um, reverse um, that condition by losing that 10 to 15 pounds and um, increasing the physical activity and changing the diet but changing the diet um, particularly being able to afford a healthy diet um, is quite expensive and it can be quite costly for families. Um, even I, as a professor, um, find it very, very difficult. I have to make serious choices when I go shopping when it comes to whether or not I buy certain things, whether or not I buy organically or not. Um, so when it comes to families, particularly families um, that are living at the edge of precarity, um, this becomes an extremely difficult proposition. But I'm seeing um, glimpses of hope. I'm seeing rays of um, optimism. Um, I live not too far from a very active area here in Oakland, California. And every day when I go out, um, I see people of all races and classes and ages out um, exercising and, and walking and running. And um, many of them are people who need to, uh, perhaps in their own estimation, lose a few pounds. But the effort is there. The will is there. The desire is there. And I would only hope that, um, that this will grow um, and take root across the country. Yeah, that's great. Because you have a really remarkable quote from uh, Darlene, who's a woman that you... Um, reference throughout the book, and she's a diabetes educator, I believe. And she's talking about high-powered physicians and healthcare workers who go to the gym at 4.30 in the morning, and then they go on to their 12-hour workday. And they expect that similar level of, of drive. 
and by extension, I guess the resources to utilize that drive for self-help from their patients. Uh, but yet she sees, you know, that's not a realistic expectation. So uh, it, it would be great, not that everybody will have that, you know, the, the type A physician, 12-hour, 4.30 a.m. gym personality, um, but maybe, as you say, more will to get out and exercise. Truly. And I think that um, for many of these, um, for lack of a better term, type A people, um, you know, early engagements with, with effort and risk and reward and success, they uh, reinforce each other over time. And they become reinforcing uh, types of behavior that encourage more of that behavior and over time instills a certain amount of discipline and a certain amount of rigor to a person's life that allows for that sort of um, existence to, to manifest itself. But for people living on the edge of precarity, people living with structural racism, people living um, through trauma, um, people living through uh, various types, various challenges that are yet to be overcome, people who can't afford to see a therapist, for example, to work through their issues, to work through their problems, to get at the root of whatever it is that, that may be holding them back. Those are the people who, once again, need to be seen from a holistic perspective and treated and treated accordingly. And that can be very difficult. In many respects, this is a classed conversation. It, 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 it points to the ways in which <clears throat> social, social class and culture sometimes produces different languages and different expectations and different forms of communication that sometimes don't quite um, register um, as coherently as they need to. Um, and one thing that I have found as well is that people, um, excuse me, physicians, particularly general practitioners, um, tend to um, actually um, engender a good deal of trust in their patients, particularly their minority patients. But at the same time, when it comes to encouraging certain types of health-seeking behaviors, um, the relationship is sometimes too informal to really encourage people to take the radical changes that they need to from that holistic perspective. Um, and that can be a problem in and of itself. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a very good point you made too about the, the uh, so-called type A personality having that self-reinforcing behavior. Um, and, and of course, not everybody having that. So, in chapter three, which is Algorithms of Risk and Race, Recruiting Black Risk and Marketing Black Bodies, uh, you present the case of the Tethys Diagnostic Tool. I'm not even sure if I'm going to pronounce it right, but it's the Pre-DX Diabetes Risk Score, or DRS. Um, and as you point out, the name itself is problematic because it, it both pre-DX would be presumably pre-diagnosis, um, but they're also talking about a risk score. So is it a diagnostic test or is it a risk test? Um, but presumably it's intended to pick up a risk or possibly diagnosis. In a particular group of people, which um, you 
call at one point pre-vivers. I think you're quoting someone. Um, <laughs> pre-vivers, which to me is kind of an ominous term because it's it's pathologizing people with no known pathology. Uh, but the idea here with Tethys was to recruit a large group of African-Americans to confirm the effectiveness of the tool in diagnosing or, or predicting risk, I should say. So, um, and this gets into research and, and throughout the book, you trouble some assumptions of research. Uh, for instance, there's a strong trend now towards declaring the need for more diversity in clinical trials, particularly of black and Latinx populations in clinical trials. But you raise various issues with those attempts to increase diversity in trials. So could you tell us about some of the issues that you see in recruiting um, diversity, let's say, to clinical trials? Sure. Um, I am not averse to increasing diversity in trials. I think it's important that, however, that diversity be reflected on both sides of the of the um, clinical and the and the research recruitment and encounter um, diversity of popula- diversity of target populations as well as diversity of researchers themselves, and that's a larger issue that we can talk about later. But at the same time, I'd like to emphasize that um, since the thematic thread throughout the book argues against race as a biological as a biological entity i maintain that the focus on certain targeted populations what um my colleague um kaltum osman in the uk university of sheffield calls minoritized populations obfuscates a closer and a deeper examination of the social determinants of health that characterize these minoritized populations. So in the book, um, the company um, um, Umtethis Biosciences sought to recruit African-Americans, and they later were able to recruit a multi-ethnic cohort as well to test and to calibrate the precision the um, precision of their diabetes risk score. Eventually, their multi-ethnic cohort analysis found no discernible difference um, due to ethnicity. But at the same time, they had previously harbored a concern that the data that they had used before that came from a Danish study would be unconvincing to clinicians and to investors because the sample um, was drawn from a relatively homogeneous um, Scandinavian population. The Danish researchers themselves also saw that as a research limitation, and they offshored their research to Mauritius, a former French uh, sugar colony in the Indian Ocean, which um, contains a population that is mostly um, of sub-Saharan African descent and South Asian mainly Indian descent. So this question of diversity is not only a scientific question, it's not only a political question, but it's also a market-driven question that, um, I, as I show in the, in, um, the book, animates many of these conversations. And so I make this link in the book between these uh, 
uh, three forward um, looking types of, of discourse. One is the medical discourse around risk. And this is where the previvors come in about the ways in which the future can be predicted. A certain type of predictable uh, uncertainty that can be statistically um, determined, that can be mathematically or algorithmically determined. But then there's also the future-seeking language around prognosis. What does that mean in terms of a certain type of outcome? And this link between risk and prognosis is where not only um, the treatment comes in, the pharmaceutalization of it, because part and parcel of the rationale for the diabetes risk score was to induce what we call a moral economy in, in the customer slash patient, so that if they were able to know that they would have a, say, 30, 40, 50% chance of becoming a type 2 diabetic within five years, that they would take it upon themselves to begin to make changes in diet and in lifestyle. And if by chance they happen to be pre-diabetic, they would um, they would seek pharmaceutical interventions, namely metformin, to uh, help stave off the onset of type 2 diabetes. But the third forward uh forward-seeking uh, or forward-speaking type of language is around speculation. So risk, prognosis, and speculation, market speculation, um, are the three uh, areas of, uh, of future discourse that I'm looking at closely within the book. Because as we know in um, Silicon Valley, um, companies don't necessarily seek to, to uh, grow in value um, through the commodities that they produce. They seek to grow in value um, through the asset value of the company that is generated. And that requires a lot of forward speech. It requires a lot of hype. It requires a lot of um, exposure in, in clinical and in medical and in um, other scientific circles and um, conversations. So, um, as I discuss in the book, um, given the amount of money that the company had taken in terms of venture capital and the ways in which scientific um, technology and um, genomics began to really um, say new things about ancestry and risk in beginning in 2011, um, the company ultimately failed in its attempt to attract asset value. So that that was really their failure was um, attracting the asset value versus not being a, an effective tool. Is that right? Correct. But as I also discuss in the book, the cost of sequencing a genome dropped dramatically in 2011, and that completely changed the ways in which we look at risk. It moved us beyond estimating or having conversations about physiological risk. And it took us further back in, in time to having conversations about ancestral risk. Yeah, and you get into that uh, a lot in chapter five, but before we go there, let's um, mention chapter four, which is uh, a dark past in present light, the black church medicine and trust. 
and here you write about problems with using the black church as an institution for recruitment to diabetes studies as well as education, diabetes education uh, and outreach. And one of the reasons for that is the parish owners tend to be middle-aged or older women, you say, and the lowest participation comes from young men. Uh, you also mentioned a certain lack of cultural competency, for instance, uh, organizing a, a, a walk in support of diabetes, uh, diabetes awareness on a Sunday morning when the black church would be happening. Um, so on the matter of education and outreach, uh, would you say something about the distinction also that you make between experts and expertise? Um, because I think this is something that's, uh, it's really important. And it's also something that's been a matter of contention in community health efforts since the 1960s, at least. Great question. Um, one thing that came f um, forth from the book, from the examples that you just mentioned, was that it's really important, and as I mentioned previously, the importance of having diversity, um, not only in research, among the researched, but also diversity of researchers. And in terms of planning the diabetes walk, for example, um, if there had been an African-American um, in the room during the planning of this, um, I would be quite certain that that diabetes walk would not have been um, planned uh, for a Sunday morning. And that was a diabetes walk in which ostensibly Umtethis Biosciences was seeking to attract African-Americans to its booth to uh, have discussions about its um, algorithm, its algorithmic technology, and perhaps um, interest African Americans in participating um, in its research. In terms of the Black Church, um, one remarkable um, thing that I witnessed was the ways in which many African American churches have developed what are known as health ministries or health cabinets. And they go out in the community, they make sure that members of the congregation have rides to their medical appointments, that they are adequately um, um, provisioned, they give out um, um, food to, uh, to the community um, weekly, um, they even deliver food to those who are homebound, they set up um, workshops around type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, caring for elders. And this is really important because they're aware that by and large, um, they're working with communities that have negative, negative um, resources. And they try to give people the tools to work um, individually as families and collectively as a community. But at the same time, I also noticed that much of the participation um, in these workshops, particularly the type two diabetes workshop, um, was one in which um, I think 39 um, of the attendees were women and maybe 15 were men. And the majority of the people attending were over 40, 45 years of age. And when it comes to type 2 diabetes, that's far too late to uh, perform outreach to a community. Um, and the majority of the people who attended the diabetes workshop were already diagnosed 
as type 2 diabetics. And um, that's how I actually began the project. I began the project um, interested looking at interested in looking at diagnosed type 2 diabetics in the African-American community. I wanted to know how they interfaced with the technology, um, how they interfaced with the biomedical message around the illness, and how they simply lived with diabetes. And it was during that time I became aware of the work around risk and the algorithms and the attempts to to recruit and solicit African-Americans for um, diabetes risk research. And that is how my project pivoted from diagnosis to risk. Now, that being said, um, one of the uh, takeaways from working with African-American churches was the ways in which the clergy themselves, as Du Bois said, the African-American clergy leads from the back of the congregation and not from the front. And I came across and met some wonderful, wonderful um, pastors who were absolutely gracious and magnanimous in um, allowing their congregations to lead these efforts. But I found um, that despite uh, um, that, despite this, these congregations were stratified depending on the church by income, by education, um, by class. Um, the church that I worked with happened to have people who um, were fairly high-ranking members in the local um, Alzheimer's um, Foundation and, and the American Diabetes Association. They were extremely helpful, but I was left wondering, and at the same time, as I discuss in the book, um, urging of innovative and creative ways um, be f- to be found to reach out to the younger population, um, the younger um, members of the community who are peripheral to these church efforts. Um, I know that, for example, Spelman College in Atlanta had um, some years ago had their freshman class, their incoming class, um, go through physical exams, and they were quite they were quite concerned at the levels of prediabetes and prehypertension and so on that um, these incoming students exhibited. Um, but not every member of the African-American community of that age group is actually going to be in university. So finding creative, inventive ways of reaching out to the community of, um, of younger people is something that I think needs to be uh, focused on and intensified in the future. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, Another issue you mentioned with outreach was um, the matter of diverse Black communities. And it's not like, as you say, there's not a a monolithic culture or even language or socioeconomic level. Um, So... As you were doing this research, did did you come across any, um, and I know you said we need better ways to reach out to youth, but uh, any better solutions to diabetes outreach, outreach in terms of um, accessing the diversity of African Americans or African descent people? Outreach in terms of testing or education? Um, education, I would guess. I think that it needs to become an important 
part of school curricula. I think that the conversations need to happen early on. I think, you know, it used to be a time where what is now known as type 1 diabetes was termed juvenile diabetes. Mm-hmm. And what is known as type 2 diabetes used to be known as adult onset diabetes. But we now know that um, type 1 diabetes can occur in people of any age. And clinicians have now diagnosed type 2 diabetes in three-year-olds. So everything has changed in that regard. So in terms of education, I think the earlier, the better. I think that combined with um, finding ways of bringing back recess and physical education um, need to be pursued, not in a coercive way, of course, but um, in a supportive way. Because this would... um, in a sense, require a cultural shift, um, a cultural shift in um, intention, in attitude, and in um, and in and in hope. Um, because in many respects, um, this is not only about the racial, in quotes, racial metabolism of any particular group. This is about the social metabolism of the wider society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in that respect, um, I think that. Talking about these things early on um, were really important, um, but at the same time, in terms of outreach um, concerning testing, that's another uh, that's another question entirely. Because we're talking about communities in which the availability and the access and the affordability of quality health care is still yet to be realized. And what happens when you give someone a diabetes diagnosis, when someone receives a type 2 diabetes diagnosis, and they don't have the resources in order to receive the, um, the care that they need to obtain the medications that they need? Um, insulin and other types of um, anti-diabetic medications can be quite costly. So what does someone do? Um, um, with um, that diagnosis, um, the Affordable Care Act went a long way toward uh, rectifying some of these questions, but we're going to need to await um, its 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 um, reintroduction and its strengthening before something like type two diabetes among these populations can be addressed effectively. Yeah, that is such a good point. Um. So I wanted to also get to chapter five, which is the ascension of the black matriarch, the search for metabolic Africa. And this is where you talk about Henrietta Lacks. Um, And so the genomic mapping of the Henrietta Lacks cell line led to what you call a a reset of the ground rules for research inclusion and informed consent. And here you talk about the Belmont report and the common rule, which both set standards for research ethics. Um, And you talk about how they became essentially obsolete in the age of genomic research, which is really, it was kind of earth shattering for the research community, I think. Um, Specifically, you write that research into inherited risk kind of leaps us into a world beyond earlier notions of individual consent and social benefit, which are two of the key tenets of the Belmont report, that the individual has the right 
to informed consent and that there must be social benefit from this research. Um, and you bring in also the idea of the alienation of the individual body from the family and from the community. So in a nutshell, this goes well beyond the established principle of informed consent of the individual. And you sum up the paradox very well, I think, um, when you talk about the uneasy balance between, and I'm quoting you here, the necessity of African descent genomic research inclusion and participation in the generation of future knowledge with the bioethics of such inclusion and participation. And I'm wondering, we're in this brave new world, so where do we go from here? I think that the conversation that you just um, encapsulated wonderfully um, brings us back to a longer standing issue. And that is the goal of achieving medical justice in the absence of social justice. And I don't think you can have one without the other. In the book, I do discuss the ways in which the Tuskegee syphilis study um, still looms large in the collective memory of many in the African-American community, particularly the older generation um, who I interviewed. But among the younger generation, they have other um, traumas, other more recent um, reasons to to have a certain modicum of distrust. And I think this is playing out as well around the vaccine. The past 30 or 40 years have witnessed uh, mass incarceration, HIV AIDS ep epidemic that has really um, affected many communities gravely. It's affected African-American women um, quite, um, quite intensively as well, um, intensely as well. Um, we have lethal policing in the neighborhoods. We have um, so many issues that have eviscerated in many respects a lot of the social life in African-American communities. And now when it comes to medical research, when it comes to the vaccine, for example, now all of a sudden um, we're hearing conversations not about punishment but conversations about care. And underlying all of this, to tie back to your original question about um, the bioethics of research um, among African-American populations, is this overriding question of trust. How to establish trust among a population that is inherently and historically distrustful based on what they've experienced. When it comes to the Henrietta Lacks case and the ethics around the case, um, two things that I find very interesting here is that Fred, um, Francis Collins, um, the former head of the um, NIH, said that if it wasn't for Rebecca Sklout's book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, he never would have been aware of the ethical considerations that the case brings up. But at the same time, due to um, changes in the common rule and other, um, and other policy changes, if the Henrietta Lacks um, situation had occurred today or over the last 10 years, due to various um, forms of um, anonymizing data and delinking them from personally identifiable information, that story would have never come to the light of day. So um, the book never would have been written. 
um, the family would have never been um, totally um, aware, if at all, as to the ways in which their ancestors' um, cancer cells had been used and not only revived um, cell biology as a discipline, but also contributed to the development of uh, the HPV vaccine um, and others, and the ways in which HeLa continues to be used in labs around the world. Um, so what genomics brings to, to the fore is not only the question of the individual and individual consent, it brings to the fore questions of communities and community consent and that what this research and what all research ultimately um, addresses is not the problems, not the illnesses, not the concerns of any one individual, but the challenges, the disparities, and the healthcare goals and aspirations of communities across the nation and across the world. Yeah, and that's something that I think is a paradigm shift that is maybe taking place slowly, slowly, because I would say it's been taking place little by little by little, at, at least since the 1960s um, and 1970s. But this being able to see the community as the functional unit rather than the individual. Particularly since um, researchers have begun increasingly to shy away from the term race. And instead of using the term race or the word race, um, they've begun to use the word populations instead. And, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you also made such an important point uh, about achieving medical justice in the absence of social justice. And of course, that's something that the, the Black Panther Party was doing in the 1960s and uh, the Young Lords were doing in the 1960s. And it was a movement. Uh, you know, those movements died out or were crushed, but, um, but their legacy has not, I think. There's a, it seems like there's a tremendous resurgence of interest in what the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords were doing in terms of providing medical justice to promote social justice. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, um, precisely. And Alondra Nelson's book, On Body and Soul, um, discusses that wonderfully. And the thing is, is that the Black Panthers aren't remembered for that. That's not, that's not what the popular imagination conceives of when they think of the Black Panthers. But living here in Oakland... Uh, where I reside, um, I've met numerous people who grew up um, with the Black Panther, um, with the Black Panthers, and um, were beneficiaries of their of their meal programs and their healthcare drives. And they speak in glowing terms of the ways in which those were formative community building experiences that. Um, that helped to shape their lives. Um, precious little was spoken about guns and violence and um, revolution of sorts. In terms of revolution, 
hearing them, the revolution was one in which um, healthcare, um, proper nutrition, and the development of a positive sense of self and community was what lasted, is what uh, remained memorable for them in terms of the Black Panther involvement in their lives. Yes, exactly. And I, I don't think it's it's done being remembered that way. So I think there, um, I, I see a lot more works coming along right now, academic works, and also popular interest um, in the history of the Black Panthers um, and also the Young Lords in promoting healthcare as a human right uh, and using that as their as their emphasis. So, and Alondra Nelson's book certainly has helped a lot in that regard as well. Uh, so, James, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you, what is your next project or what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm working on two projects. Um, given first, the first project is... Um, is, is entitled A Syndemic in the Ring of Fire, COVID-19, Type 2 Diabetes, and Climate Change. And, um, and this project is looking at what we call a syndemic, um, to borrow Merrill Singer's um, term, in which you have two or more pandemics occurring simultaneously. So looking at the viral pandemic, the pandemic of type 2 diabetes, and the arguable pandemic, um, of climate change. And we're looking at the ways in which the pandemic has changed or has affected the ways in which type 2 diabetes is lived and experienced um, among people, um, particularly in California and more specifically um, in Northern California, the Bay Area. I'm looking at the ways in which um, clinicians have adjusted um, or um, their, their um, treatment modalities um, during the pandemic in working with their patients. Um, and how have the fires that raged across California before the pandemic started, how did that begin to, um, to change the ways in which type 2 diabetics lived? Because when we had those fires, we were sheltering in place as well. We weren't allowed to go outside for long periods of time. Um, and for type 2 diabetics who need to move, um, need to keep their bodies active, um, and particularly the ways in which this affected um, immigrant farm workers who, um, who for various reasons um, were constrained to go out and, and, and work um, contributes to this conversation that we'd like to have because the book, the book is the book. The book was finished um, in 2019, um, mid-2019, and then the fires hit in the fall. And um, if I had had more time, I would have added another chapter about the pandemic. But that being the case, um, this new project is going to look at the ways in which type 2 diabetes has been lived and practiced since the, since the pandemic began. Um, the second project is looking at the problem of diversity. So W.E.B. Du Bois said at the beginning of the 20th century that the problem of the 20th century is a problem of the color line. I'm arguing that the problem of the 21st century is a problem of diversity. So I'm going to be looking at um, taking from the fifth chapter from the book, looking at sub-Saharan African diversity genomically as desirable within the lab, but also looking at sub-Saharan African diversity as undesirable in an age of ethno-nationalism and rising white nationalism. So I'm going to be counterbalancing these two forms of 
these two ways in which blackness and sub-Saharan African ancestry occupy two different um, registers within the contemporary moment. Those both sound fascinating. And uh, I look forward to reading the results when they come out. Thank you. I look forward to returning and discussing. <laughs> yes. And I, um, I hope everybody who listens to the interview, I'm sure they've um, learned a lot, first of all. Um, but check out the book, Sweetness in the Blood, Risk, uh, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes, uh, because as you've heard from James, there are a lot of very important messages uh, that it carries as well. So um, thanks so much for being here today, James. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me.